0: It's so good to sing to and of our Savior, amen, to sing on the things that we have been diligently learning in Hebrews. Turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 10 as we begin our time this morning. I want us to think on the fact that every truth has a real effect on those who know and believe it. For example, it's been proven that brushing your teeth is an essential aspect of maintaining dental health. Because of that, all of us, I trust, regularly brush our teeth. But that example highlights two other important realities about truth, and that is that the depth of your knowledge and the fervency with which you you believe something will affect how much it actually alters your life. A dentist who has gone to school and has learned all the terrible things that can go wrong if you don't prioritize brushing your teeth, most likely brushes his or her teeth with more consistency and thoroughness than your eight-year-old son. But secondly, this example reminds us that while every truth has some real effect, there are those who affect all the areas of our life, who affect us on a daily basis. These are top-shelf truths. For example, if I told you this morning that I was being serious that there was only enough air in this room to sustain human life for five more minutes, if you believed that, it would affect what you did next, wouldn't it? And the fervency with which you believe that would be evident to all because the way in which you did what you did next would be with great enthusiasm, In that case, failure to believe the warning would result potentially not even in the loss of your own life, but the loss of the life of those who look to you for guidance. The gospel of Jesus Christ, of course, fits squarely in that second category of truth, those supreme truths. In fact, the gospel, it's not an overstatement at all to say that the gospel is the supreme truth. There is no other truth on the planet that you will ever encounter that should affect your life more than the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is so infinitely crucial to our lives, it must necessarily then change the lives of every person who claims to believe it. To believe it is to have a life transformed by it and to deny it is to not only lose your earthly life, but it is to lose your soul to eternal condemnation. I think it's safe to say there's no truth more consequential than this truth. And it's because of that that the author of Hebrews is so set on us not losing our our focus, our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ who is the savior, the one who has brought this gospel, not just the message, but he is the one who has, has secured the gospel. And this morning as we turn our eyes again to Christ and see just how glorious and superior he is, it will exalt our view also of the gospel he secured and I pray it will change our life in the way that it should. We're returning to the theme of the book of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ. We've been in this section now from chapter eight, verse one, all the way until chapter 10, verse 18. We'll finish this section, this unit of thought today. And the key argument, of course, I hope you have it by now in mind, is that Jesus is superior to the old covenant and the sacrifices of the old covenant. Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. Now, he's presented for us in these closing arguments, two particular closing arguments in verses one to 10, which we've already studied together. Let's read those today because they set the context for verses 11 to 18. So Hebrews 10 verse one begins, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there's a reminder of sins year by year for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it's written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once For all. These are the two closing arguments that we've seen so far. The first argument is the inadequacy of the old covenant sacrifices. The reason that they were inadequate is because they couldn't provide eternal perfection. And they couldn't provide eternal perfection because they were, first of all, continual, they never stopped, they were a reminder of sins. And secondly, the sacrifices themselves were inadequate because they were animal sacrifices and not the sacrifice of a perfect image bearer. The second argument that we read there in verses 5 to 10 is the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. This comes to us from a quote from Psalm 40 that we studied last week. There we saw these three layers of the argument, the text itself from Psalm 40, then the explanation of that passage and the application of that passage. Essentially. We just did an expository message on an expository message. And in that expository message, he proved to us that Jesus is superior where the law failed on both accounts. The content of his sacrifice was superior because it was his body. And the effectiveness of his sacrifice was superior because it was once and for all. It was not continual. But now that brings us to the author's grand finale. We're going to draw this passage to a close today in verses 11 to 18. And this is also an important moment in the book of Hebrews as a whole because we're coming to the end of the doctrinal section of Hebrews. You are aware that many books in the New Testament are split, where the first half deals with doctrine, the second half deals with the application of that doctrine. In this case, the author's taken. Ten and a half chapters for doctrine, but beginning next week in verse 19 through the end of the book, primarily we'll be looking at the application of all the wonderful truths that we've looked at so far. So chapter 10, 19 through chapter 13 will be the implications. But today I want you to think about verses 11 to 18 like a a theological firework show. The grand finale of the fireworks show, you've been to a fireworks show, you know that that the grand finale doesn't necessarily consist of altogether new types of fireworks, but the grand finale at the end of the show changes the intensity and the speed with which those same fireworks are being exploded into the sky. That's the idea here. It's not that we're gonna have brand new truths or brand new ideas brought to us. Instead, picture it like the end of that firework show as we rejoice and stand in awe of our savior and remember all the things that we've been taught. So let's look at these verses, verses 11 to 18. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days says the Lord I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things there is no longer any offering for sin. Now in this grand finale the author chooses to to put our attention on two prophetic fulfillments. The first fulfillment we'll call his prophetic posture. Each of these fulfillments Uh, focuses on a particular way that Christ's sacrifice is the once-for-all sacrifice that's superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. And here, fulfillment one, his prophetic posture in verses 11 to 14. Now, in verse 11, he again goes back and, and shows us the old covenant priest. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. As he's done throughout this argument, he's going to look at, at the inadequacy of the Old Covenant and point us ultimately to the adequacy of Christ. But the emphasis here in verse 11 is the posture of these priests. What is the posture of the Old Covenant priest in verse 11? They are standing. They're standing. Every priest stands daily ministering. Now, why are they standing? They're standing because they're busy fulfilling the work that God commanded to do. They're busy making sacrifices. The work of making sacrifices, as you know, was a continual daily process. There were times of the year when certain festivals and holidays required excessive amounts of sacrifices, but at least on a daily basis, they had a morning and evening sacrifice every single day. Therefore, you wouldn't find a priest sitting down you would find the priest busy on his feet carrying out his job. This is Numbers 28, verse 3. You shall say to them, this is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, one year old without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. So the priests are standing, busy doing what God had commanded them to do under the Old Covenant. Now, Greek grammar here actually is our friend. I would say because the truths of scripture are of supreme importance, the grammar actually matters in this case far more than you ever thought it mattered when you were in school. The grammar here actually teaches us the theology behind what's being taught here because the word stands, that's a verb, and the participles that describe that verb, ministering and offering are all in the present tense. Now in the Greek, the present tense gives the idea of of an action that's happening continually. Here we are again, back to that point. They're standing continually, they're ministering continually, they're offering continually, ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. The author's gonna use that Greek grammar in a moment and put it up against what Christ does instead. So hold on to that for a moment. But he finishes off this statement by again highlighting the the ineffective nature of those sacrifices because he says at the end of verse 11, these are offerings that they're making which can never take away sins. Now at this time that the book of Hebrews is written, The temple is still standing, the sacrificial system is still ongoing, and so these Jewish Christians could literally walk by every day and see a living illustration of what the author is saying. Every morning, every evening, there they are, standing, making their sacrifices, as ineffectual as they are. But put that now up against our Savior. The continual nature of those sacrifices is, again, in this grand finale, put up against Christ. And he says, but he, verse 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, again, we are focusing on posture. The priest of the old covenant stands, Christ here stands sits. He sat down. Now in your Bible, those words sat down at the right hand of God are likely in a different font. It's because they're a quote from Psalm 110, which we read at the beginning of the service. And the Greek grammar again comes into play because in the grammar we see the emphasis of the argument. Because unlike the work of the priest, which is in the present tense, ongoing, this verb here is an aorist tense verb, which in the Greek simply means it's a completed action. It's not ongoing, it's done. They stand continually, Christ sat, done. His work is finished. He offered his offering once and he sat once and it's done. This posture is a prophetic posture. What I mean by that is Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 110 that we read earlier. He sits there because it was God's divine intention that he would sit there as proof, lasting proof that his sacrifice was indeed sufficient. And he sits there waiting, it says, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. This is from verse one, specifically of Psalm 110. Let me just remind you what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Christ has declared his victory, proven his victory in his life, death, and resurrection, and he sits in victory waiting the day when when that victory will be fully expressed and he will reign as the king of kings and righteousness will rule physically on this planet. But notice that the posture of Christ is at the invitation of the Father. And that invitation is given to the Son Hundreds of years before the incarnation, it says the Lord says to my Lord, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand. It's an invitation from the Father to the Son to sit. It's a reference to the righteous reign of the King of Kings. God gives a command to the old covenant priest and says, stand, do your work, day in, day out, because you're just a shadow of the one who I will call and he will sit but only he will sit at my right hand. Why, what is it about Christ that has rightly gained him this invitation to sit at the Father's right hand? Clearly he says, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now there's a lot packed in to that short statement In fact, each one of these prophetic fulfillments that we'll see culminates with a grand statement. This is the first statement. We'll look at the second when we get there. But this is the crescendo of this first prophetic fulfillment. It's really the the point that he's highlighting. He begins, for by one offering, like a great finale, we see the repetition here, but this is calculated repetition. Repetition. The author's fully aware that he's already said these things. He's bringing our attention again one more time on purpose to this idea for by one singular offering to show us the superiority of such an offering. What offering is this that has only to be offered once? Notice what he's accomplished, again, by this one singular offering, for by one offering he has perfected, it says. He's perfected. Again, we see the emphasis on the need for perfection. Without perfection, you cannot see God. With with one singular offering, Christ has brought perfection. Now this verb, again, is in the perfect tense. We talk about the perfect tense a lot. He has perfected, it's been done, completed action, but the ramifications of that action go on into today and they'll go on into the future. By that one offering, he perfected God's people. For how long? It says for all time, for all time, done, once. And think about this, that the sacrifice of Christ is applied to you by faith, immediately you are perfected for all time and yet eternally you will continue to be perfected for all time because God made it so. And it's because of this, this one singular exalted offering that has accomplished perfection for God's people that he says, come, son, sit at my right hand. The father's invitation then, the way we're to interpret that Psalm 110, one invitation is the father's acceptance of the son and his sacrifice and an, exp- an expression of his pleasure in the Son. He delights in the Son, and the Father has accepted his sacrifice as indeed sufficient. By sitting at the right hand, you're familiar with that phrase, come sit at my right hand. This is an invitation to the most prominent position, the right hand, in the most prominent location in heaven, beside the most prominent being, God the Father. Now they are one, Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm not in in any way saying they are not, The idea is the Father, the exalted Father, calls the Son, come sit at my right hand. Now we understand the great degree to which we ought to take with seriousness the other New Testament commands that talk about dwelling on Christ as the one who is seated at the Father's right hand. That's a pretty common way in the New Testament for authors to refer to Christ. Think about for instance, the famous example of this in Colossians chapter 3. Paul says to us in Colossians 3, 1, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The heavenly seat of Christ, what we have to understand is this seat of Christ is the center of our hope, and it's our motivation in the Christian life. Paul tells the Christians to or the Colossians here, to keep seeking the things that are above, and then he reminds us that this is the place where Christ is seated. Why? Why the emphasis on the seating of Christ at the right hand? It's because when we rightly understand the prophetic position of Christ, who's seated at the Father's hand as as a living witness that he is the Son of David, who is exalted above every other power, whose sacrifice is eternally accepted as sufficient, when we rightly understand that, it becomes the source of our hope and the source of our strength to live life in a fallen world. Your sanctification is is emboldened and strengthened when you rightly look to Christ seated on the throne. Why should we turn our eyes to Jesus? Why does that famous song say that we should turn our eyes upon Jesus, and when we do that, the things of earth will grow strangely dim? It's because when your mental eye is on Jesus, and you rightly understand the significance of the one you're beholding, it puts everything else in perspective. Everything falls into its proper place when our eyes are on Christ, and we understand who it is we're beholding. He is simultaneously your glorious God, your sovereign king, your righteousness, your sacrifice for sin, your intercessor, your help, even your friend. And when you look to Christ, it's those things that should come to mind. He is all in all, And here's the thing, if you've been trying to apply the things we're learning in Hebrews and you've tried to look to Christ throughout the day, but at the end of your looking, you find that you're just as weary and just as hopeless and just as powerless over your sin, then that means that when you look to Christ, you did not comprehend the significance of the one you were beholding. You may have mentally turned your mind to Christ for a moment, but you didn't leave them there long enough for the truth of who he is to impact your heart. Now remember the context of what we're learning here in Hebrews. We have a group of believers that are beaten down by trials. We don't know the full extent of what those trials were, but probably some kind of persecution. They're wavering in their faith. Their endurance is on the brink. And the author author keeps offering them the same solution. Think about that. Over and over again, from every angle imaginable, he says, are you weary? Then consider the superiority of Christ. Is your faith weak? Consider the superiority of Christ. Are you tempted to consider some form of works-based righteousness? Consider the superiority of Christ. Does your Christianity threaten your reputation, the loss of your possessions, and even the loss of your life? Consider the superiority of Christ. Why the broken record response? It's because if you look to Christ and come back unchanged, you didn't understand who you saw. The truth of who Christ is, is the supreme truth. And that means that to truly believe Christ is who he says he is, is to have a life and a heart and a mind transformed by that belief. So Christian, let me invite you again. Consider Christ. Consider with me his prophetic position. Consider the fact that even now Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. Consider what that means. Consider that if you belong to Christ, you've been perfected by his perfect offering once for all time. And consider that he doesn't sit there idly just waiting. He is waiting, as Psalm 110 says, but Hebrews are, has already revealed. He's also our intercessor. He intercedes on our behalf, and He intercedes as the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so we have to look again and again and again and behold our Savior, but not just look, but comprehend who we're looking at. And then, that will affect our heart, our mind, our hands, our feet. Now, The urgency for this call to look again to him, the one who perfected us with one singular offering, is also highlighted by who it is he says here has been perfected specifically. He says this in a multitude of different ways throughout Hebrews, but notice how he describes it here for us, that he offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. But then it goes down to say in verse 14, for by one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, this is a little bit different than last week. He's he's turning our attention to something else. Last week, we saw the word sanctified. If you remember, we talked about the fact that Sanctification can refer to two different things in the scripture. Literally here, a better translation of the Greek uh, grammar would be those who are being sanctified. In fact, if you have the NASB, it probably has a marginal note there. The ESV translates it this way. Those who are being sanctified. Now, why is that significant? It's because it tells us which kind of sanctification the author has in mind here. Remember, there's positional sanctification and there is progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is that process of sanctification in which we are made holy uh, inch by inch each day of our life until the Lord brings us home. And positional sanctification refers to being set apart unto God as holy. That's a one-time act that will go on forever until we're finally glorified and that's realized. But here, When he says that this applies to those who are being sanctified, what kind of sanctification do you think he's talking about? Obviously, this is progressive sanctification. Now, when you read the verse again with that in mind, it's actually an interesting concept. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time. Notice that, that's in the perfect tense, a past action, he's done it. He's perfected for all time, those who are being made holy, sanctified. It's interesting, what is he saying? He's emphasizing here something that's really crucial for us because you could be reading Hebrews or hearing us talk through this and come to the wrong conclusion that he's done it all and so since he's done it all, there's nothing left to do. Let's just wait around until he comes back to take us home. But the New Testament is so balanced. In this one verse, we have the balance. He has done it all. He has made you perfect in Christ if you put your faith in Christ. And yet, in this life, you recognize you haven't arrived yet, have you? Neither have I. We are sinful people still fighting our sin, tooth and nail every day. We are those who are being sanctified. He's done it, that's your assurance and yet we're still in the fight, and he is here to help us in the fight. Keep fighting, keep killing sin until he brings you home and you are glorified, and the reality that he purchased for you on the cross comes to its full culmination. But we're not to sit idly by in regards to our sin. We are those who are being sanctified, which is a work that God does, but he calls us to participate in by giving our maximum effort. The work ultimately is his, the fruit is completely his, and yet we are to busy ourselves with pursuing Christ. So now that we've put all this together, it's my prayer that our meditations on Christ as the one seated at the right hand of the Father become what the author really means for them to be. That when we set our mind on him, we see the significance of who he is, and that then filters down to affect our daily life. But there's a second prophetic fulfillment here in verses 15 to 18 that we'll call his prophetic pardon. We had his prophetic position, posture, and now his prophetic pardon. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. Now, just a moment, stop there. This is another example in Hebrews, we've already seen this before, but we see that the author is a firm believer in the inspiration of the scriptures because he's gonna quote from Jeremiah. But he doesn't say as Jeremiah says to us, he says as the Holy Spirit testifies to us. And so he's a firm believer as we ought to be in the inspiration of the words of scripture and he's actually gonna take us all the way back to where we began. Now, you, like me, probably have forgotten by now what passage we were in all the way back in chapter 8, because a lot of times passed since then, but let me just remind us, we began this whole argument with a quote from Jeremiah 31, and that passage has sort of been hanging in the background this entire time since chapter 8, and now as he wraps things up in this grand finale, he brings us back to where he quoted from Jeremiah 31 back in chapter eight. Only the difference here is he's going to make a separate point from the one he made in chapter eight. In chapter eight, he quoted Jeremiah 31 as a passage to prove that the new covenant had replaced the old. Now, he's gonna draw an implication from that. Because the new covenant has replaced the old, it means something for us, and that's gonna be the point that we have here in this repetition of Jeremiah 31. So let's read his quote. Let's read verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, At the end of verse 15, notice the last three words. For after saying. Now what that means is the first part of the quote, actually two-thirds of the quote from Jeremiah 31, is not really the point. So I don't want you, not that it's not important, it's just not the point that he's making. So I don't want to get lost in the first part of this. I actually explained all of this in its context from Jeremiah 31 when we were back in chapter 8. So I'm not going to go back through all of that. I just want you to see this really lays the context. These words are the context. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. Now, (coughs) excuse me, obviously in the new covenant, believers are are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates the truth. In that sense, we have the, the law of God written on our hearts. We're not beholden to the law of Moses any longer in the way that the Jews were under the old covenant. We have the, the word of God inside of us as the Spirit illuminates the truth. But that's just the context to the point because he says, after saying that, what I just read, he then says, and this is the point, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. This is the implication he wants us to understand. Now, he began in chapter eight by making the declaration, the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. And I would say he's proved that pretty effectively, wouldn't you? From the chapter eight all the way to chapter 10. Now he says, now that I've proved that to you, don't miss the implication. It means if the new has replaced the old, then these words are true. Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Wow. Those are powerful, transforming words. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. What are the implications of the fact that a God who is omniscient, knows everything, says, I will remember your sins no more. Now, is it possible for God to actually forget anything? No, not if he's omniscient. He knows everything. So what does it mean when God says, I will remember your sins no more? It means that God will make an intentional choice to never bring to mind again Your sin, if you're in Christ. And He will never again treat you as your sins deserve. Think about that. Not because He doesn't remember that you're a sinner, (laughs) but because He's chosen that you are one bought by the blood of His Son. And therefore, just as He treated His Son as you deserved on the cross, He will forever treat you as His Son deserves. Eternally. Wow. This is the gift of the new covenant. I will remember your sins no more. Because it's intentional. He won't treat you as your sins deserve. Now if we've received that kind of forgiveness based off of the once for all sacrifice of Christ, it means something else. And this is where we see the fireworks show culminating to its peak. As he says in verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Where there's forgiveness of these things, that is your sins and transgressions, there's no longer any offering for sin now, at this point, by any measure you can come up with, you can say the author has sufficiently proven that Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant, he's ushered in the new, he's done so by fulfilling the old covenant, by becoming the sacrifice that was prophesied, and by being exalted to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. All of that has culminated in the full and complete forgiveness of our sins, which means necessarily... Christ has brought an end to sacrifice. That's because there is no other offering for sin that God will accept. He's accepted perfectly the offering of his son, therefore anything else you will bring him is a mockery and an offense to God. There is no sacrifice that he will accept. This is to sway these Jewish Christians away from any concept that what they need to do now is take their new Christian faith and sort of try to synchronize that with Judaism and have some sort of new sacrificial system. He says, no, 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 we're not going back to those sacrifices. Christ has done it all. And so now you see the full brilliance of the colors of the, of the fireworks show of theology here as he brings to a close, Christ has done it all. There's no more left to be done. He is indeed superior to both the old covenant and the sacrifices it contained. But now we have to ask the question, do we believe that? Let me ask you personally, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is this superior savior that the author has said he is? And if the answer is yes, I believe that. The next question you have to answer is how has that changed your life? How has it changed the way you live your daily life if you say that you believe that this Jesus is who we've just studied him to be? And I say that because the supreme truth of Christ and the gospel as we began declaring is the truth that trumps the value of all other truths and as the supreme truth that affects all other truths, it ought to affect our daily life as well. It ought to affect the way you think and speak and live and act. You can't truly believe the passage that we just studied and remain unaffected. It's not possible but the question is, how should it affect us? How should we be different because we're a people who believe that Christ is who he says he is? Well the author's going to launch into a long list of things that ought to be different about us starting next week in verse 19 all the way through chapter 13. But I don't want to steal his thunder in that. So what, what I've decided to do for the remainder of our time is just to back up and to consider some truths that the scriptures as a whole teach us that ought to be true as we respond to the things that we've just heard. And I first want to address some of the incorrect ways that we're tempted to respond to such a truth as this. Just two, two of the wrong ways. This is how we shouldn't respond. The first one is what we call antinomianism. I hinted at this earlier. Antinomianism is a misapplication of the gospel that says, you know, since Christ has done it all, my sins are paid for, past, present, and future. I just kind of live how I want, really. I mean, grace is abounding. And so the pursuit of holiness really isn't all that important. uh, And I'm just going to live and eat, drink, and be merry until Christ takes me home. The Apostle Paul deals with that head on in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Listen to what Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. In Romans 6, Paul's astounded at the insinuation that after declaring the glories of God's grace, any of us would, would take advantage of that grace and say, hey, If grace just abounds to meet whatever level of sin I throw at it, then why not just live in sin? Paul says, because that's impossible. How can we who have died to sin still live in it, he says. This is a mockery of the grace of God. And so this morning, we want to be careful that the warm blanket of assurance and love that God's once-for-all forgiveness of sins provides doesn't lead us down a similar path of antinomianism. Just live how you wanna live. But on, as is often true, there's a ditch on the other side of the road, which is legalism, we'll call. Legalism can affect our sanctification, certainly when we add to the commands of Scripture. We go beyond what's written and we require them of ourselves and of others. That's a form of legalism, but legalism at its heart is taking the grace of God and saying, I believe that the gospel is a gospel of grace, But I need to add some works to it. So it's going to be grace plus works. This is the unfortunate gospel of Roman Catholicism. It's a a gospel that says, yes, we have grace in Christ and and he has been a sacrifice for our sins, but uh, we've got to add our own good works to it. You've got to come to mass every week where Christ supposedly is re-sacrificed for your sins, to pay for the ones that you've committed this last week and then come again the next week, even the next day and the next and the next and the next and then hope that there's a priest to read you your last rites in the end when you're dying to help make up the lack. But don't worry if you don't, there'll be purgatory and you can make up for it there. This is not the gospel. This is legalism in its worst expression where the gospel is adulterated. It's no longer a gospel of grace. I bring that up because the author is worried that the Jews are gonna make some kind of version of that mistake. They're obviously looking at the old covenant sacrifices with, with some fondness and he says don't go back there and we ought not to go back there either with any Christianized version of self-righteousness. So antinomianism and legalism both are the incorrect responses, but what is the right response? How should this rightly affect us? Well, Paul, again, summarizes the right response for us in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 2, eight to 10. Notice the order of how Paul puts it. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one will boast. But notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is the biblical balance. This is the biblical order. This is what will keep you on the biblical path of righteousness without falling off on the one side to antinomianism or the right to legalism. In summary form, what we have here is a salvation that's secured by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, period. After the period, new sentence. Because you're a new creation in Christ by grace alone, you now walk in obedience, not to earn anything on the other side of the period. It's already been earned. It's because this is the Christian life. And notice, these are works that Christ prepared beforehand. This is, this is ordained for us as God's people to walk in a manner worthy of him, to honor him, to show our love for him, propelled by his grace, but not to go back and earn anything in that first sentence. Christ earned all of that. So true salvation is secured by Christ's work on your behalf. True salvation is applied to you by grace through faith and true salvation then results in good works for God's glory. Now, with that in mind, just for a moment, I want to explore. I had a long list of these, but we don't have time for all of them, so I'm going to narrow the list, and trust me, there's a lot of application coming, but I do want us to think, when we think rightly about the exaltation of Christ, exactly how should that show up on a daily basis? I'm just going to mention three areas. The first two are in relation to to God, the third is in relation to others. How should we be rightly motivated to respond to such a savior and such a gospel, number one, grace-motivated faith. Grace-motivated faith. Now, in this instance, I don't mean the faith that accompanies salvation, the initial moment of faith. I mean the way we live with faith in God on a daily basis. The Christian must exercise the muscle of faith if you're to grow unto spiritual maturity. Throughout the Christian life, God will graciously give you one preordained trial after another. And I say graciously because it is from the good heart of your father for your good that he will give you one trial after another. So by the way, if you're looking for this month to be the month that finally slows down and there's no problems and everything is, is, is rosy with no bumps in the road, your sanctification matters too much to Christ for him to let that be true. So even today, just expect, just, let's just get over it and expect there's gonna be a divinely ordained bump in the road because I don't know about you, but the truth is as much as I often long for ease, I grow far more when my life is hard because I'm to trust the Lord in those moments. It's easy to trust the Lord when you're not being stretched. And so God won't leave us in that place of ease for long, but he comes along with a perfectly tailored trial to test your faith in exactly the way it needs to be tested at exactly the right moment in your spiritual growth so that you will grow in him. And that growth will come as you exercise the muscle of faith in him in that moment. And by faith, I'm not talking, I have to say this because it's it's become popular, I'm not talking about a, a prosperity gospel, name it and claim it type of faith that God's gonna take this away and I'm believing this is gonna go away. No, I'm talking about believing that God is who He says He is in the middle of that trial. That's what I mean by exercising the muscle of faith. So, what does that look like? Well, who has God revealed Himself to be on the pages of Scripture? let's just mention a few. Here are a few attributes that God says are true of him. He's sovereign, he's good, he's omnipotent, that's all-powerful, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere at the same time all the time, he's omniscient, knows all things, he is just, he is holy, he's compassionate, and he's slow to anger. That's just a a a short summary of some of the things the Bible says about God. Now, I want you to think about that. When you're in the midst of a trial, you're going to be tempted to, to not hold on to one or more of those truths or to think that your circumstances somehow cloud your ability to believe some of those things to be true about God. Your trials will ask you, so to speak, do you really believe God is sovereign? then why are you so angry that your plans this weekend were changed? Do you really believe that God is good? Then why are you moping around like he's treated you unfairly? Do you really believe that God is holy? Then why is it so easy for you to indulge in the things he hates? Do you really believe that God is merciful? then why are you acting like he didn't hear you when you prayed and asked for repentance and forgiveness of sin? Don't you see how pervasively this message of Christ's once for all sacrifice changes our view of everything? Don't you see why you have to constantly look to Christ? As you live your daily life and you experience one test of faith after another, The question is, will you look to Christ in that moment and will you believe he is who he says he is? And as you exercise that muscle of faith, you will grow. But in the same way that a personal trainer, if you had a personal trainer who was helping you work on your physical strength is going to continually add weight incrementally to your workout so that, I thought about this this week, you know, if you're really working out the way that we're, they say we should be working out, and we're trying to to push our muscles to actually grow, then you have to put enough weight on the bar that it's hard, right? So every time you work out, it never feels any easier. You, You don't feel like you're getting any stronger but it's because you've added more weight to the bar. You're actually lifting more weight than you were a month ago, but it feels just as hard as it did a month ago because more weight's been added. And I think that's how God treats trials in our lives. That's why it never seems to get any easier. Why don't I get any better at this? Well, by God's grace, if you were to look back a year ago, you probably are better at it than you were then, but it's just as hard because the Lord's gonna keep pushing you and keep pushing you to trust, believe me, do you believe who I am? Will you put one foot in front of the other? And as you do, you grow. But not only grace-motivated faith should produce grace-motivated repentance. And again, in this case, I'm not speaking of that initial repentance at the point of salvation, but the new life of repentance that that initial repentance ushers in. We understand that Christ has died for all sins, all of our sins. He set us free from sin's penalty and, and power, and that draws us then to live a, a consistent life of repentance. It, it draws a, us to hate sin. And the scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, This is not a a heavy burden of repentance because God is beating us with a whip. It is the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God that daily draws us to say, I wanna be done with this sin. God, I wanna turn to you again and again and again. Do you hate sin? Do you look to Christ in the midst of sin and is, the, is it the glory of Christ and the kindness of Christ and the compassion of your Savior that draws you to say no, to walk away from that sin, to put off, to renew your mind, to put on? When we think rightly about Christ, when we look at him in our mind's eye, seated on the throne, and we comprehend, comprehend who he is, suddenly the allure of sin fades away in the light of his glory. So it should transform our repentance. It makes our feet quick to run from sin to the Savior. But not only that, it doesn't just transform the way we treat God in our faith and our repentance, it actually should transform the way then we treat one another. This is the third and final example I'll give, but I hope that this week you'll add to it yourself as you think on the implications of this. But number three, we'll call grace motivated graciousness grace-motivated graciousness. The once for all forgiveness of Christ should produce in us a growing eagerness to extend the gracious forgiveness God has lavished on us to those around us. The more we look to Christ, the more we can see him seated on his throne and we consider who he is and the fact that he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness to us, the more we ought to Extend such loving kindness to those he brings into our life. Let me ask you Does the compassion Christ extends to you spill over to the others around you? Does the patience that Christ extends to you right now on a daily basis show up in your patience towards those who live under your roof, your spouse, your kids, your neighbors who come over, maybe? more often than you like. (laughs) There's a gentleness with which Christ corrects you, color the way that you treat other people in our church. Are you gentle and patient with the weaknesses of others as you serve with them and get to know them in this body? You know, who says that doctrine's not practical? The truth is there's nothing more practical in the world than understanding doctrine. What does the truth that Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant and its sacrifices change about our daily lives? Only everything. Only everything. I hope that you'll think more deeply about these things this week. But I do want to say that if you claim to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet you honestly look at your life and you say, you know what, there's nothing different about who I've been from who I was, from the time I said I came to truly believe this gospel. Now let me encourage you to truly search your heart. Have you truly come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you truly come to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone? Have you truly come to understand that your sins separate you from a holy God, a good God, who's made a way for you, not in what you can do, but in what his son has done on the cross and rising from the dead that if you would turn from your sins and repentance and faith you'd be forgiven eternally cleansed made right with God ask yourself this morning if you look in the mirror honestly and you see the same lifestyle you had when you say you were an unbeliever and nothing's changed you have to begin to wonder I may have looked to Christ but I don't think I ever really comprehended what I was looking at but I do now and I wanna turn in faith and repentance to him. If that's true of you this morning, I'd love to talk with you more after the service if you have questions about that. But don't leave here with that doubt in your mind and that unsettled, but turn to Christ and you'll find him gracious to forgive. This morning, we providentially have the opportunity to celebrate the grace of Christ and the way he gave us to celebrate through the Lord's table. I'm going to invite Randy to come, and he's going to begin to play here in just a moment. And as he does, we're going to take a moment, as we always do, to test our own hearts, to prepare for the the table. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in so doing he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What Paul's saying here is that to take of the table in a worthy manner is really two things. It's to know Christ as your personal savior, to truly have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ. But secondly, it is to to, to not be harboring unrepentant sin in your heart, where you know that you're holding on to a certain sin and you're unwilling to let go of that and turn and forsake it and run to Christ. And so this morning, before we take of the table, which is a, a memorial to remind us of the great cost of the payment for our sins and the joy that we're to have and the freedom from sin's penalty and power, we're gonna take a few moments just to prepare our hearts. So I'll give you time to pray individually there and then I'll pray to close us and we'll take of the table.